0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org.
1: Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. I'm Michael. Uh, It's an honor to be here. It's especially fitting to be at the Luce Foundation because a lot of the documents that – Um, I used for the Japanese occupation of the Northeast, particularly around Manchukuo, um, were in fact rescued by Henry Luce at one point, which may be an apocryphal story, but the story goes that some of these documents were um, set to be shipped uh, to a dock in Japan, and the army clerk instead said, no, 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 let's not ship them that way, let's steer them towards somewhere else, and that Henry Luce actually intervened and gave money for these. Is this a true story, an apocryphal story? I've heard this before, okay. Um, the New York Public Library has an amazing trove, as does the Library of Congress, um, of these uh, Manchukuo reports and things that Japan had produced, and apparently this is on because of Henry Luce. So I'm going to talk, um, usually I do this talk, I show 60 pictures in about 50 minutes. Tonight I'm gonna to cut those photos down a bit so we have time for questions. If your questions um, elicit something that I could show a photo to illustrate, uh, especially around some of the historical things, I'll flip ahead to those. But um, to begin, here's my book cover, and I'm gonna show you, here's a map of China. (coughs) Um, I'm talking about this region, of course, up here in the Northeast. Contemporary Chinese call this area Dongbei, as all you know, it's not Manchuria. Although the word Manchuria is not the same as the word Manchukuo, which was the Japanese puppet state that existed here from 31 to 45. Um, I do, in the book, talk about the etymology of the word Manchuria, and how it was used on maps as far back as the 18th century on some of the Jesuit-drawn maps, and how even after Japanese occupation, Zhou Enlai, Liu Shatsuki, <coughs> and some of their personal correspondents would use Manzhou as opposed to Dongbei. Dongbei really came into use more in the 1950s. And you know, the name of this place has changed quite a bit over the years. For a while, it was Donsan-shang right? It was the three eastern provinces as well. So I'll be talking about this area here. Um, As many of you know, China says, Chinese often say their country resembles the outline of a chicken, uh, which makes the Northeast its head up here. Um, So we're up against uh, Mongolia, Russia, and North Korea. Now, I went to China 20 years ago this summer completely by accident. The Peace Corps told me to go to China. I was a Spanish speaker. I thought I was going to Latin America. They offered me Vladivostok. I said, that's not Spanish speaking. Uh, They said Mongolia, I said no. They said Turkmenistan, which is over here. I said no. They said, Kiribati, which is down here. I finally kept saying, no. They said, it's not Club Med. It's the Peace Corps. You have to choose. You have to say yes. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. Um, and they called back a few days later and said, China, take it. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I can't speak Chinese. I don't even need chopsticks. Uh, but three weeks later, i had given my cat away, sold my car, broken my apartment lease, and I had 100 bucks to my name. Thanks to my mom. She gave me some traveler's checks because she felt sorry for me. And I was out here in nejiang in Sichuanhua, you say Leijang, down here in Sichuan. I was the first Peace Corps volunteer down here. Um, and then after two years, I moved up to Beijing. Um, and then after that, um, I wrote a book called The Last Days of Old Beijing. Some of you may remember I spoke here uh, seven years ago, actually, in this very room for this book. Here's my bike, here's my house with the rooftop that needs weeding. Um, I worked in Beijing anyway as a teacher and as a journalist, but um, I realized at the time to write a book is um, when you, the book you want to read doesn't exist. Um, at this time, Beijing was over, you know, making itself over for the Olympics, and I wanted to know what life was like in the Hutong, these old lanes, and whether um, their destruction was frankly a good thing or a bad thing. And for me to understand that, I had to live in those conditions, and so this wasn't an opulent mansion and said, you came off the lane here. It had been subdivided starting in 1955 when when housing became uh, a basic right, not a commodity. Mm -hmm. And I lived in the furthest back, darkest, wettest uh, corner of the area. This is three people living in this door, uh, one person living here, an elderly woman living here, and three people living in the room in which I'm standing. We did not have heat. We did not have air conditioning. We did not have hot water. We had a cold water tap. Here's our laundry hanging up. Uh, we had a propane burner here. I did have really fast broadband internet though. The, the Beijing uh, netcom ran a line over my, over my rooftop and down in. My neighbors called me Da because I had two rooms. I was big landlord. Uh, they all had one, right? Um, so for three years actually, I lived in these conditions while I was working on the last days of old Beijing and looking at conditions um, in this neighborhood. And Dashilar. I was right on the southeast, southwest corner of Tiananmen Square. The toilet was down the lane. That was absolutely the worst part of living there. And then run up to the Olympics. uh, Advertising permeated every corner of the city to the point where I'd walk in the toilet, squat down and see this guy telling me all the diseases, all the the symptoms I should be checking myself for. I need to find this agent. Um, You'll notice this is before the Olympics um, rectification of English campaign, if you a bad pun here. This became the proctology hospital. But I like, uh, you know, one of the things I like about reporting in China, and living in China, is how frank uh, people can be and how frank the language is, frankly. You know, like there's no toupee, it's fake hair. You say japa and stuff like that. Um, last picture I'll show you from Beijing. This is our main uh, hutong in our neighborhood in Daxalara. This is Yanshoujie, Longevity Street. Uh, urban planner walked this with me and said, boy, you know, you have everything you need except for open-heart surgery within about five minutes from your house, which is why people love the neighborhood. You know, I thought when I moved into this this neighborhood that I was writing a book about architectural heritage, cultural preservation. Instead, I ended up writing a book about this dense community and the roles that people play in it. Um, Not that much unlike what, you know, Jane Jank was posited here in New York in The Death of Life of Great American Cities. The reason I'm showing you this picture, and this is the last picture I'll show you of Beijing before we go to the Northeast, is these, I, I taught the same group of students, grade four, grade five, grade six. I was very lucky to follow them for three years and to get to know their parents. These are fourth grade students. Uh, they're wearing the hutong they're wearing their school uniform, the um, safety hats that every Beijing kid has to wear to show them the, the, so cars can see them, although there are no cars in the Hutong. They're wearing their young pioneer neck scarves, Grade four. These are girls I taught who had been in grade four and in grade five, and now they're grade six. They are not wearing the hat, the kerchief, or the uniform. (coughs) Does anybody know why? (coughs) Because why would these sixth graders no longer be in the school uniform? They had to sit for the middle school entrance exam. In China, um, if your parents are from the outside, from the rural areas or other places outside of Beijing, you are eligible, if those parents come into the city, you're eligible to attend elementary school, but when it's time to sit for the middle school entrance exam, you have to go back to your home village, right? And so I noticed, you know, when these kids graduated grade six, they're already out of the system here. This is right toward the end of the school year, actually. Um, They were gone, you know, that about half of the kids that I taught in this neighborhood were gone. Um, And so it got me thinking, what's life like in the countryside? Again, to go back to, you know it's time to write a book when the book you want to read doesn't exist. I had written a story about the changes in urban China. Now I wanted to know, what did it look like out here? Right? What if you go to a place where there where there isn't that density? Now, Dachalar, this neighborhood, is a square mile. Vatican City is a square mile. Vatican City has, has 700 people living in it. is a square mile has 57,000 people living in it. So I wanted to do the opposite of this now and go to a rural area without that density of population to go to a place that's also a square mile. But in this case, the village I went to only has 1,000 people living in it. So I left Beijing. I headed straight northeast. I went 600 miles this way. It's the same as um, if you hopped a train in DC and ended up in central Maine. That's 600 miles uh, that direction as well. So I went right to the heart of Jilin province, which is the heart of Dongbei itself. This is the Songhua River here. It actually flows this direction. Um, so I'm downriver from Jilin city. I'm about 20 miles outside of Jilin right here. Chanchun's the provincial capital, it was also the capital of Manchukuo, the Japanese puppet state. Um, And I'm just up here. Again, uh, North Korea is quite close. Uh, I'm not going to talk a lot about Korea. I can answer it in a question. Um, In the book, I touch on it quite a bit because it, it impacts everyday life in this area to the point where I'm living. There are quite a few North Korean refugees that are there as well. The only trouble I ever got in with the police or the only suspicion I ever had with the police out in the countryside was that I might be a missionary, but I was there actually ministering to the North Koreans who were hiding uh, and living in these areas, or hiding openly, I should say, working as farmers, because it was the Koreans who brought the rice crops um, to this area in the 1910s and 1920s. Vladivostok, I can't escape its pull, uh, Mongolia here. I'm actually closer to Vladivostok and Pyongyang than I am to Beijing. geographically, and also I'd say culturally. So when I moved here, um, why did I pick this village? My wife grew up in this village, and this is the school that my wife went to, actually. When my wife left and went to university in Beijing, and she went on to uh, Berkeley for law school, Um, and we had this idea, we were living in Manhattan. This was after the Beijing book had been finished. She wanted to work here as an attorney. After about two years, she said, you know what? Maybe it'd be fun to go home. You want to write about the countryside? Um, I want to see what my village was like, you know, and I want to go back and and live there. So we moved back to this village called Wasteland, where she lived as a little girl. My wife lasted a week before she was like, that's it, I'm out. It's minus 18 in the wintertime, everybody treats me like I'm an 8-year-old girl again, Um, I'm not interested. I want to resume my career. So my wife went to Hong Kong and started working for a law firm there and left me behind, essentially. Um, But a lot of villagers felt sorry for me, in a way. They empathized. They're like, well, you're a lot like us. Like, one spouse goes to the big city to work. The other spouse stays behind to watch the house. So this is the elementary school my wife actually attended. Uh, I do want to point out in the beginning, I taught, I volunteered as an English teacher again. I do want to point out that, although I'm saying the word countryside, oftentimes in China, the word countryside, wrongly, I think, is interpreted as woo-ho, right? We're talking about a backward place. Wasteland is not a backward place by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Farmers in this area earn about 50% more than your average Chinese farmer. You'll notice this is a brand new school building with uh, vans and cars waiting to take the kids home. They don't even walk back to their farmhouses, the new accordion gate, guard post here. Nice basketball uh, court in summer. It's a lot nicer than in winter. Um, but I found myself, you know, again, I, I wanted to be useful, and so I volunteered at the school. Now, when I first moved here, I really thought that the story I was going to write was much akin to what Pearl Buck did with her husband, John Losingbuck, Buck, when they went out in the 20s into Anway in the late 20s. And Losingbuck Buck was the better-known writer at the time than Pearl. And he did these massive farm surveys. And Pearl would sit, he'd be out in the field with the men, and Pearl would sit in the houses with the women, and she would ask them, what do you feed your babies? What do you like to cook? What's the price of vegetables where you go? Do you know any good jokes? What songs do you sing? And she collected all this great lore. And so when you're reading Losing Buck's really dry field reports, they're, they're really hard to get through. It's a lot of statistical tables on like crop rotation. In the middle of all this are these little anecdotes that Pearl's collected mm-hmm. of local village folklore, again, recipes, songs, uh, couplets, and so forth. Um, Their marriage did not last long, actually. He gave her no... Losing Buck did not credit her at the back of these books. Um, She left him quite soon after and wrote The Good Earth in five months' time. Uh, But I thought I was going to kind of do what she did, which is just spend time walking around the countryside looking at what was different than in Beijing and talking to people like Mr. Meng, who um is the first chinese to not only have seen an extraterrestrial up close but actually um had relations with an extra- extraterrestrial and uh, you know the people if you talk to chinese people people from Dongbei, donbei right um they often sort of i'm from minnesota and people from elsewhere in the country often think of minnesota as a bit touched right we're out in the middle of nowhere with this minnesota nice thing. oh you bet you know that the ha ha folksy thing um some of it's true, by the way. Uh, and I think people in China often think of Dongbei Ran as the same way, like a little out there. You know, they're isolated and they have their own way of doing things. Well, Mr. Mong, to me, was this great example of this. He was a lumberjack on this uh, defunct commune who said that he saw a bright light on the mountaintop one night, went and investigated it. Uh, it turned out to be a UFO. That night, when he was in bed, he levitated above the bed, went through the wall, was in the spaceship, and made love to an alien. And I said, Did you tell your wife? And he said, No. But I told the media, and so he became sort of a cause slipper in China to the point where, like, Japanese tourists were coming and giving him gifts. Uh, a Malaysian man came and brought him a cow, and he's like, what am I going do with a cow out here? I saw him as this great example of, like, Dongbei self-invention. Like, how do you get yourself out of these situations? Because his story became so well-known that uh, uh, an official at Ahar, being the provincial capital University offered him a job taking care of the boiler on campus, which got him off the farm and got his son into the university-affiliated middle school. So he, made, you know, this story that he spun got him off of this. So I saw him as this great example of self-invention. My wife saw him as this great example of the art of Northeastern bullshitting, which <laughs> Northeasterners are also really famous for. But it was funny too. I asked him to draw the creature, and he drew a series of concentric rings, like rubber rings with eyes and rubbery hands, and I realized that the only billboard between town and his commune was for Michelin tires. <laughs> it's the Michelin man. <laughs> okay. So this is where the project started. Um, I went. I was just going to focus on people like him, and then again, one square mile, the same size as Dr. the neighborhood that I had come from. I could just look at the people who had come across this territory over the last 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, and sort of tell the history of the village uh, through one piece of land. Here's the land, the farm in snow. Uh, Here it is at Thaw, which is about right now, actually. You know, people from the the Northeast don't call it dirt. It's Haytudi. It's that deep, rich, black earth that looks and feels like spent coffee grounds. It's incredibly fertile soil uh, on the Soma River floodplain here, Um, to the point that people who live in this area can survive on only growing one crop. They don't even do a cover crop. They don't do anything else but rice. It's a boutique crop in many ways. Um, and it's the short grain sticky rice that we eat in sushi. Right? Your average Chinese farmer makes about $1,500 a year. Again, people on Wasteland make upward of $2,200 a year. Um, it's comparatively prosperous. So I think American publishers always want to say, like, how does this book explain rural China? It's very hard to explain rural China through the aspect of one farm because there is no such thing as a typical Chinese farm. Somebody growing cotton in Xinjiang is very different than somebody raising poultry um, in Anhui province. It's different than somebody raising rice in the northeast, especially a a village that just grows one crop, late April to September. Here it is when the grain's in ear here. This is high high point of summer. And here we are at harvest time. See the foothills in the distance here. This beautiful sky, these low-hanging clouds. This is still a uh, hand-cut field. It's now all mechanized here, which I'll get to in a second. And here it is again at harvest time. To me, this looks a lot like Northern California. Um, it looks nothing like wasteland. It certainly looks nothing like Beijing or Sichuan where I've been living. I, I tried in you know, the book to find out why it's called wasteland. Um, the only historical marker in the village, because like many villages, they used their gazetteer, they used their local records for cooking fuel. Uh, they would burn their records you know, at the, from the 70s to 80s. There was no history of the work point system during the communes and so forth. The only marker in the village is a little stone that says, in 1956, it became a village. So that sort of became a talisman for me in the book, of like, okay, I need to go deeper than that. We need to dig deeper. Um, The place is called Wasteland. It stretches back, actually, to Kangxi's reign in the Qing Dynasty. It it was founded in 1722. This village here is named uh, Lonely Outpost. This village is named Mudtown. This village over here is called the Dunes. And this village is Zhang's Smelly Ditch, which I love. <laughs> and so um, over time, you know, villagers, the, the theory anyway, is that people gave these these beautiful places these horrible sounding names so other migrants wouldn't stop there and farm, or bandits would pass through, or Japanese, uh, Russian, Soviet soldiers, and so forth uh, wouldn't pass through, or wouldn't stop either. Although all those armies did, in fact, pass through. There's a very large uh, Chinese Civil War battle, for example, on the outskirts of this town. This is the house I lived in. Uh, I had half of it. I thought I could find a house really easily. Everything I read about China is people are leaving villages. Villages are dying. You know, I thought there'd be cows that needed to be milked and rakes laying out in the in the yard. No, I couldn't find a house. It took months to find a place to live. Um, I shared this house with an a ethnic Manchu fisherman. He has this half here. Here's our onions and our corns coming in. Grape trellis here. Our outhouse is back here. No advertising in the outhouse, I'm happy to say. My windows, and when you step inside, Uh, This is in autumn when the corn's all the way ready to be picked. You step inside here, it's just this little area, and then you step up onto the con, right? Mm -hmm. The the, the brick bed that is um, indigenous to the northeast. You see the burn marks here. Um, There's a vent on the outside of the house that you stuff with dried rice chaff, and like that, and it smolders, and it heats your entire house. So even like on a minus 18 degree day, I could be in my shorts and a t-shirt sitting on top of this, and you start to smell like baked bread after a while. It's (laughs) nice to sit up on these things. (laughs) When I first moved there, there was only one road in town. I moved there in 2010, by the way. Um, there's only one road. Uh, it's called Hongti Lu. Uh, no one could agree. Is it red flag because of the red flag of liberation, or is it red flag because the red banner was here? You know, the manorial system that the the Manchu used during the Qing Dynasty to govern uh, areas such as this. Because this area is within the Manchu homeland, um, and so no one could agree actually on the interpretation of this. Uh, Named either. Now, like I said, I thought I was doing one kind of book, but that summer in 2010, I realized I was doing a very different kind of book. Um, this started happening. Trucks came, dropped these big stones off, uh, laborers were brought in from Julian City, and they doubled the width of Red Flag Road. This greatly incensed uh, one of the main books, the book's main characters, is Auntie Yi. E. She's grown up in this village, and she lived under Manchuko occupation. Um, she is a communist uh, official. She was the village administrator for the 70s and 80s, and 90s mostly before she had to retire because she reached age 55, which is a mandatory retirement age for women. Um, this is her house. She was incensed that people came and painted the outside of her house yellow without asking. She was incensed that people came and dug up her poppies that she had planted here and planted Wasteland's first lawn. She was incensed that those old trees in the previous photo had been uprooted and these seedlings were planted instead. She was incensed that new streetlights went in with advertising on them. And that advertising was for the company that built the road. <laughs> Most of all, Auntie Eve, died in the Will communist market member said, look, I don't like the fact that our village, which was open in the 1950s essentially, that really came online with um, the farming we're doing right now and a population moving here uh, to really settle the place after liberation is now being developed by a company. One company. An agribusiness, right? And so she said, we're, we're, we're leaving the socialist road and we're going down a capitalist road and I don't like this. And I'll explain this more in depth in a moment. She asked me something that no one asked me in all my years in Beijing. Hundreds of interviews for the last days of Beijing about the changes going on in Beijing. I would always say to like Beijing planners, like, you don't have to make the same mistakes America made. And an official once said to me, we have every right to make the same mistakes <laughs> America made. Which is true, right? Development goes through stages. I'm not. I, that's, I thought it was a pretty good retort, actually. But one thing Auntie said to me that stuck with me and sort of became the crux of this book. is She said, "How do you know when a place has developed just enough?" You always hear in China, right? Now, development is the only principle. You know, Fajan de and so forth. Everything is about development. So, our village, with a much higher per capita income than the average Chinese farmer, new school, good infrastructure, uh, very good medical clinic, comparatively speaking. Maybe we've developed just enough, and now we're going down this other road. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more here. So, my backyard uh, looked like this come winter. Here's my, my roommate. He's um, doing the traditional Manchu, the Manchurian dried corn here. And then by the next summer, this became this. So, the other thing that, like, oh, is that good or bad, by the way? If you're under age 50 in the village, this was really good. If you're over age 50, it was right along the same lines as actually in the Beijing Hutong that younger people who wanted a kid, who wanted access to, say, a fire department if there was a fire, who wanted heat, who wanted a place put their car, they were more than willing to move out of the Hutong and take a modern apartment. People in Wasteland were more than willing to move out of their single-story farming homes, their, their courtyard homes, um, and move to these high-rises if it meant they could leave their farm. Right? So here's what started happening in Wasteland. This local agribusiness, and I'm going to speak generally here because there are international agribusinesses doing this too. For example, Cargill, a Minnesota privately owned agribusiness, has a poultry operation in Anhui, not far from where the good earth is set, that employs 4,000 people and processes 65 million chickens a year. Its manager says, this is peanuts on the scale of China. We're going to keep growing and growing and growing. The provincial authorities are supporting us. They like the fact that we can control disease, We can um, put barbed wire around the area, control the feed we're giving the chickens, control their health, and so on. Food safety is very important. In Wasteland, this is all being done by a local agribusiness, and it's a family that was once the poorest family in the village. So I don't want to paint the agribusiness as evil. I want to stay pragmatic here because a lot of people in the village support what they're doing. And one of the things that Eastern Fortune Rice is doing is they're saying, okay, farmers, here's the deal. We know that under the current, you know, under the Constitution... All land is owned by the state. Farmers have a 30-year leasehold on their farm. An average farm in China for a family would be about an acre and a half, about the size of an American football field. To put that in context, to be viable in the states as a family farm, you have to go up 2,000 acres, the Department of Agriculture says. So in China, these families have about an acre and a half. It's enough to for sustenance and to, to make an income to live off of. The company is saying, listen, you have a 30-year leasehold on that. Some of you don't want to farm anymore. We'll, con- we'll sublease your farm. We'll contract at a three-year period the rights to farm your plot. We'll plant it. We'll use mechanized planting. We'll use mechanized harvesting. We'll keep the profits from it. We'll give you a fixed price. Right now you're making $2,300 a year. Look, prices are going up. Water's up. Fertilizer's up. Seeds up. We'll guarantee you 2500 a year if you sign this contract. So some farmers are saying, that's great. We can move off our land. And if you want, another part of this deal is, give us your house, give us that delimited farmhouse you're living in. We'll tear that down and use that acreage to plant more rice. Okay. In exchange for that, we'll give you a new apartment. You will no longer be no mean. You'll, be, you'll no longer be classified as a peasant or a farmer. I hate that word peasant. We should all be saying farmer at this point in our lives. We're no longer going to call you a farmer. You could be Shermie. You'll be a, You'll be an urbanite, right? Because you're going to be in these apartments. These are in the village, by the way. This is right outside back of Beckham's house. Again, younger people like this trade. Um, older people, such as the character in the book, Sanjo, um, who I follow throughout this, don't want to sign this document. They feel like Sanjo has been here since the 50s. He's farmed here his entire life. He feels like, look, I'm actually making a profit now. The price of rice has doubled in the last six years. It's going to keep going up. I have a very nice house. You see he rebuilt his house with cement here and tiled on the outside and nice uh, weatherproof windows. He sweeps his stoop here. He's got a chicken coop, vegetable garden, um, the whole deal, he feels like, no, I'm really satisfied. I don't want to sign this contract. But he feels very pressured that he has to. Because even though his field is an acre and a half, it's right here. But this family soul, or sublease theirs. This family sublease theirs. Another company comes and says, sure, it'd be nice to take our, our planning machines right across in a row, or our harvesters right across in a row. And you're getting pretty old. Maybe you should be moving you know, to these new high-rise apartments. So for him, he feels like, no, I'm being pressured now. He said, look, I used to be pressured under landlords in feudal times. My father was pressured under landlords, then in my time, I was pressured under cadres, you know, officials from outside coming in and telling us what to plant and what our, our quotas were going to be. Well, now I'm being pressured by managers. And he said, I just have this respite right now where we no longer have to give our grain to the state. That's been abolished. All taxes on agricultural workers were abolished in 2006. So he free of that. He's free and clear to make a profit. So he's another person in this book who's saying, look, I'm pushing back a bit against this, but I want to make clear there are plenty of people in this book also who say, can't wait to make this trade. Good job, thank you. Now, one of the reasons um, the government is supporting this, this is Hu Jintao, then president of China, who visited Eastern Fortune Rice and visited Wasteland in 2007, usually when a Chinese leader goes to the countryside. As you know, they're wearing a Zhongshan suit, they're putting on wellingtons, they're out in the muck with the farmers, right, to show solidarity with the people. After all, the Communist Party came to power, um, largely on, uh, not largely, with popular support, and one of the reasons for that was land redistribution in the 1950s. So... When Hu Jintao shows up here in 2007, and his photo op is instead at Eastern Fortune Rice with the manager, the necktie wearing, uh, you know, manager, the president of Eastern Fortune Rice, people in the village start thinking, hmm, interesting, you know, that we were raised to study Dajai, the Great Commune in Kobe. that was the propaganda that we studied in the 70s, and now instead we're being told uh, this is a little bit dark, but this is a big billboard in the north in wasteland. It says Dongbei <laughs> Di you know, build the first village of the Northeast. And now if you go on Baidu, for example, the Chinese search engine, and search this village's name, you'll see article after article, as this is a model of what the nation could start doing with mechanized farming. So every year the Ministry of Agriculture puts out a number one document around New Year. The last tw- It's usually traditionally about rural reforms anyway, but the last 12 years in a row, it's specifically focused on scaling up farming in China. right? And America is cited all the time. The United States no longer counts farmers in its census. Right? As of 1992, our Census Bureau decided that farmers were statistically insignificant. China wants to get to that level. China knows that in the 1930s, there were you know, nine million farms in America. Now there's less than two million farms in America. Um, that less than 10% of our population, less than 10% of our farms actually, grow 75% of our food. Why does China want to do this? There are good reasons for this. One is. The average age of a farmer in, in Wasteland is about Sanjo's age. He's 67 at this point. There is no 4-H club at school. My wife is 37 years old. She grew up in this village as a little girl. Even her generation was not allowed in the field. Right? Um, certainly kids in the single-child generation are not allowed in the field to do farm work. Their parents want them getting white-collar jobs or at least studying for a white-collar job. So there's a huge la- la- labor pool shortage. second thing is, China has massive issues with soil pollution right now. You know, a top-secret survey was finally released last year that talked about an area the size of the state of Maryland is contaminated that can no longer be planted. So that land is coming offline, so there's pressure to get as much as they can off the land that's there. That means smarter farming methods. Land is being urbanized. An area the size of New York State has been urbanized. That farmland is offline. And so although China is reclaiming farmland and making up some of that deficit, it's trying to get the same amount of crops, if not more, off less and less land with a shrinking workforce. And so the way to do that is to scale up to mechanize operations. And the last thing really is food safety. This is a big thing that started when I started researching this book in 2010. You can imagine, if all of us in this room bring our acres worth of of dried rice, polished rice, to the granary, if I'm a food safety official, I have no idea knowing how much fertilizer you put on it, what the soil is like in your corner of the village, and so forth. So that food safety is such an issue now, too, that the government is saying, look, we need to start, um, if, we have, if we scale up these farms and we have one management system over them, uh, we can focus much more on safety. So this is sort of the crux of the book. This is one part of the book, is I'm following a growing season, uh, Sanjo's Farm specifically, this gentleman right here, and what he's going through and the pressure that's going up, all the while... Eastern fortune rice is getting bigger and bigger. They're signing up more and more family farms around them. They start diversifying their business. They built a hot spring resort. So we were having tourists coming. That's what that road was doubled in width for. So tourists from Changchun and Jilin would come out. Some villagers thought this was a great thing. They said, we used to be a dead end. Now people come and see us. We sell our rice all over China. Um, It's a good thing that people come and visit us. So we don't want to close ourselves off other people say it's really odd now that like agricultural tourism is a thing. I say, so, you know, in America, there's sort of a romantic thing about farming, right? That we're not farmers, we're growers. And people like Sanjo say, we're manufacturers. In Chowchoo, they make cars, here we make rice. We are You are looking at a factory. That pretty scenery you see, that's not scenery. That's a manufactured landscape. We're a food factory, right? So there, there's a less romantic um, bent on things here. Uh, but kids do come to this organic hot spring resort slash farm that Eastern Fortune Rice has built, and it's funny, you watch the kids, these city kids, they come, they don't know how to pick the watermelon, so they kinda of kick them like soccer balls, you know? But there's an education curve going on here where at least I think there's a gesture towards trying to educate younger people about the farms. But again, this is one part of the book, this Eastern Fortune to the point where at the end of things the management I should say was always very open with me, would always let me come in and interview them and sit with them, they'd go on record. Uh, you can do due diligence reports now in companies in China. So I had a due diligence firm, and I had a lawyer um, look through any pending lawsuits, um, any fines they had received from the Environmental Protection Agency, anything like that. And they came up pretty clean, actually. I don't want to demonize them. Um, but I thought their vision for the village was so out of tune with the people who had lived there their entire lives and had developed it to the point where, toward the end of the book, um, the manager came to me and said, I have good news, I have good news. is so what He said, we're going to change the village name. I said, why? Wasteland's an awesome name. They think it's 1722 of Kami si and it's older than the United States itself. And he said, no, oh, no, no, no. Much better name. I said, what? He said, we're going to change it to Eastern Fortune after our company. <laughs> and, uh, it's amazing. It's not only I'm writing about a place becoming a company town, it's literally becoming a company town, right? It's making that transition. Um, so, again, this is one half of the book. And the other half of the book, so I cycle, I, I talk in a book, I'm cycling through, and I'm going to end here actually. I'll, I'll cut the historical stuff so we have time for a QA and a discussion. But briefly, in three minutes, I'll just say that the book is structured around two kinds of time. So, there's the seasonal, forever, the eternal time of the seasons. I go, it's structured on the JDT, the, the um, actually not JDT, the JT. The, um, The equinoxes, right, that you've grain in here, and the the awakening of insects, these traditional solar terms that farmers follow, these two-week periods that lead you through the growing season. That's eternal time. No matter who's been in the Northeast, whether it was the Jin or the Jurchen who became the Manchu and swept down and conquered all of China, whether it was the Russians, the Japanese, the Guomindang, the communists, no matter who was there, people have planted and grown here. So there's this eternal time of the farm. And the book's other sort of time is this man-made, ephemeral time. Because what so attracts me to the Northeast is that succession of one after another regimes and foreigners often have come into this area and tried to bend it to their narrative, to their will. And all of them have failed. So when you talk about China, you say, oh, 5,000 years of history, Wu Qian and the we've all heard this, right, that stentorian voice. 5,000 years of history. I like writing about the Northeast and and investigating the Northeast because you're really talking about 400 years of recorded history, not time immemorial. And there's a great Chinese sociologist, who wrote about this. He said, you know, here in the countryside, history really doesn't matter. He said, "The, the fall of the Qin, the rise of the Han, who cares, right? That where we live right now, our history is what we see around us, our interpersonal history, the history of the fields instead. So I wanted to buck against that a little bit and uncover how much history you can actually visit in the Northeast. And it's really like traveling across a board game called Empire, right? That as you're traveling, you are constantly <clears throat> running up artifacts. The last surviving Manchu speakers—three women in their late 80s, still surviving. A grandson in this village trying to teach the Manchu language. But coming against so much political pressure, because if you teach a foreign language in a Chinese school, it has to be English. It can't be Manchu. But still, this is a school. Passing on Manchu culture begins with me. And it's written in Manchu above it. You know, finding things like the remains of the Willow Palisade, the the Lesser Great Wall that the Manchu erected, this thousand-mile barrier where they tried to keep Chinese and Koreans and Mongolians from moving into their land. Here are some Manchu farmers gleefully jumping on those rooms. <laughs> seeing things like St. Sophia Orthodox Cathedral and Harbin, the, the Russian Cathedral. That up until 1999, you could not see this from the street. This was blocked off by apartment buildings, you know. But the northeast was cut loose of the central government funding in, in a large uh, measure in the late 90s. Closing of state-owned enterprises hurt this area a lot, um, and so they turned to tourism. And showcasing this colonial past as, as tourism. These are called patriotic education bases now. But seeing old Russian-built railway stations still sitting out in the middle of nowhere. And the brighter the station walls, the more desolate the surrounding area. it was urging people to get off. You know, uh, Seeing these old Russian-built water towers you know, with the keystones that say 1901. Again, I'm coming from Beijing. So much of this has been torn down. Um, seeing things like these Japanese relics after the Jap- Japanese defeated um, the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. This looks like something from Hops- you know, the Habsburg era or something. It's pea gravel. Um, and I interviewed the curator of this museum who had to protect it during the Cultural Revolution and how he did that. and Mayer did not make a phone call to save it, he said. That's an <laughs> apocryphal story. And I'll wrap up here rather quickly. But also seeing things like this Japanese-built... 19. 19- this is a Japanese-built hotel on the South Manchuria Railway, 1912. These are still in existence, you can still stay in these. You know, and like, here's that hotel in 1912, the road's being built. <coughs> Same hotel, 2012. The road is still being built. I like that. But you can walk inside this and hear the creaking wooden floors and go up the creaking wooden staircase and follow Puyi, the last emperor of China. Follow his diary as he talks about being hidden here by the Japanese for months in this room, right here, this air conditioning unit is. No plaque marks the spot, right? Uh, Being hidden here before he was enthroned as emperor of Manchukuo at his puppet palace. And I can go on like this through these eras, right? The the siege of Changchun, the great uh, battle between the communists and and Guomindang that took 160,000 lives. Hiroshima killed 160,000 people in five seconds. Changchun took five months. You can go through the Korean War and the remnants there. Survivors of the Bataan Death March were brought to a POW camp. The general who surrendered Singapore, the general who surrendered the Philippines, were brought to a POW camp uh, not far from the village, actually, where I am. I'll just go ahead to that rather quickly. And I I found old people like Sergeant Hal Leith, who was a young 30, he was an OSS officer, parachuting down Amidst 30,000 Japanese troops, to tell them the war was over and he was here to liberate the camp. Mm-hmm. You know stuff like this. So in the book, I'm following this other history too that you don't see in contemporary Chinese history books. Um, things that my students and even my wife, who's from this area, didn't know about. So I'm going to stop there so we have time for questions about anything from Chinese agriculture to Northeast history. So thank you very much. Michael, yeah. <coughs> fantastic Hi. talk. Thank I'm you. Bill Armstrong, retired business journalist. So, the people who sell their farms mm-hmm. or lease, lease them, sublease officially, so, yeah. sublease them to
2: Eastern Fortune Rice, what do, they, do they still work on the farms?
1: What do they do <clears throat> to support themselves? Or they, they get the guaranteed payment, so they have that money in hand. Um, the younger people either operate little businesses around the village, so like a motorcycle repair shop. Uh, there's more and more restaurants I'm seeing now, um, seed shops, funerary, sort of like, am I saying that word, funerary? Funerary, uh, you know, flowers, stuff like that. Like the, all these little needs that were never met before are popping up in the town. So they operate those shops. Some of them go to Jilin City and work normal jobs and make the commute because the road's better now. So it's about a 45 minute bus ride or they have cars and go into Jilin. And the old people don't do anything. And that's a shame. That's the thing I noticed already, is that, you know, there's this notion of JDT, like you have to be connected to the Earth's energy, be on the ground. And when people move into these high-rises, you see this sort of life drain. Is there much depression among these people? It's hard for me to say, you know, sort of visiting them day-to-day because I get, I'm get like i like the confessor. You know I mean? People can tell me anything sort of thing. It's usually bad news. Um, but yeah, I see it just like I saw it in Beijing. My roommate, though, Mr. Guan, who's a character in the book, too, he's ethnic Manchu, who I live with, he was very happy to move out into the new apartment, and he still does his fishing route. He gets up at like 3.30 in the morning, goes into the Soha River, casts his net, uh, gets fish, makes his rounds around the village to sell fresh fish. But then at 8 o'clock, he goes to Eastern Fortune's new rice polisher and the warehouse, and he puts on a Eastern Fortune jacket. It's red, You know, his name tag, name. and he's very happy. He does a 9-to-5 job now, and then he comes home and he's asleep usually by 7 o'clock at night, but he gets up and fishes again. And, and was the name actually changed to Eastern Fortune? It hasn't been changed yet. But I keep looking at Google Maps. Like in Beijing, they put on a new atlas or a new map every six months. I keep waiting, like, okay, any minute now. Yeah. And the road is still Red Flag Road. Uh, nothing's changed. The big rumor right now: Eastern Fortune opened a rose gar, a rose farm, a greenhouse. It's funny, because I'm from Minnesota, from a very rural area. My, where I grew up, is mostly rose farms. It's horse hobby hobby farms uh, for horses, and it's rose farms. It's not corn anymore, right? Or hay. Um, And in this area, they're doing the Rose Farm thing now. And the manager says his big ambition now is a ski resort, and uh, he's gonna build the hill. And (laughs) he he wants a Starbucks. And I would not put it past him, really. Because Gillian City doesn't have a Starbucks. He said, we get a Starbucks. Yes? Um, Jan
2: Barrett's from the National
1: Committee.
0: Welcome, Michael. Hi, Jan,
2: thank
0: you. Fabulous, fabulous, as expected. what kind of antagonism is there, if any, amongst those who sort of sold out and those who kept pure, like your woman that you spoke about? And is that tangible, or do you only hear it in your father professor?
1: It's very tangible. And it's something I wasn't expecting. I thought moving to a village, first of all, a family that would be easier to live in and write about than being in Beijing, where I was a stranger. Much harder to write about family uh, and any an intimate connection than it is about um, strangers. But um, Jan, you're right, these people know each other. This is a thousand people, and the census really is—it's actually officially five hundred nine, five hundred to five hundred kids. One one one. I love that ratio, right? Um, it's really more about a thousand. Um, but they know each other. They grew up together, and there is a sense of why are you still holding out, Sanjo? You know this form, and he feels that pressure. And he had a stroke uh, toward the end of the research of this book. He had a stroke and was laid up. And the people who were, he was complaining to me that when he was laid up in the hospital, getting his IV—you know, he was to have the IV. Um, that people would visit him not to, uh, not to ask about his health, but to ask like, so now you're going to sign, right? That sort of thing. And he feels like, you know, I'm going to show them there's a different way of doing this right now. I don't feel the urge. It's funny, there's a sort of character that you meet in China, you know, that these people like in the, in, the, in the Hutong, too, in Beijing, who did not mind being the nail that sticks out, right? i will stay two or three years, and I would watch them go through the appeals process, and in the end, they would all end up getting more money. You know, and that's, ah, I, sold, I told you so. would like, "Yeah, but you live without heat and water for two years." You know, whatever you really heard. You. The good news is in the village. I can honestly say, Eastern Fortune Rice has not coerced any. There hasn't been anything like you see in the city where the police come in because they still own the lease on this land. It's theirs to decide. But there is that interpersonal, that interpersonal pressure it's and intergenerational pressure, where Sanjo's sons are saying you know, like, "Come on, Dad, like we don't want to inherit this." You know? Yeah. It, it,
0: so does that play out in terms of village politics, and is that, how does that all work out with these people now? Are there, people just don't talk to each other, or?
2: Yep.
1: There are people, resentment steeped like tea leaves in a village, is the way I put it in the book. Um, people don't talk to each other. That's how it turns out. And people will go to different, like, Sancho's son owns a really good dumpling restaurant. There are some people in the village who won't eat there. And so I'm in the middle of all this. but right? I'm hearing all these sides and sides. you go tell so-and-so I said this. And I'm like, dude, I do not want to be part of this. <laughs> this goes all the way back to... I'm glad up, I went to... Um, some of you maybe have been to Shagang, which is the place in in um, the village in Anhui where the families revolted and under a cover of darkness, um, you know, inked their thumbprint on a document saying, we are no longer going to turn our crops over to the state. This is an act in 1978 that started this revolution towards... Um, individual farm farming, right? Family held plots. And we're gonna grow our own food, we're gonna give a surplus a part of our family to feed ourselves first, then we'll turn it over to the state. And policy was enacted after that. I went to that village Jen, where it's enshrined now is you know Communist Party lore. This is where it all started and there's a museum and stuff. You it's a one-road village not much longer than here to maybe twice the length of this room. You can go from this house across here to that house back to this house. These two sides of the street aren't talking to each other. Still over the interpretation of well, my dad signed his name on that document first, and your dad was supposed to sign behind him, aside him, so it looked like they were taking equal blame, but he signed under him. Like, this is still playing out. Yeah, yeah. so you see it, definitely. Yeah? Um, what, what kinds of efforts are being used to preserve mansion culture? Mm-hmm. Good question. Very little, actually.
0: Yes,
1: Can you tell us who you are? Hi, I'm Guy Martin. I'm, I'm glad you asked that, actually. Um, you know, you see more of this, in the Northeast, then you do like something traditionally Manchu. And uh, by the way, I asked the Changchun official, why did you keep this Japanese shrine? People like to roller skate here, which makes sense. They do. <laughs> it's pragmatic. I like the Japanese pioneer. This is right in the heart of Changchun. Changchun is a great open air museum to go to because you see things like the Manchu, quote, you know, state, the state, um, the minister of state and stuff. Um, this is true mostly in China. You know, if it's not ethnic Han culture, it's not, quote unquote, as important or as worthy of preservation to the point where. The only UNESCO heritage site in the Northeast, there's two, actually. There's one um, in Shenyang, which was the Qing Palace. The, it's a lesser model of Forbidden City, which sort of looks like Ming culture, Han Chinese culture. But the other one is the Kuguro tombs, which are on the... They're sort of ziggurat, like Maya-looking tombs um, that are on the board with North Korea. And that's shared with North Korea. So there isn't anything, except for this Shenyang Palace, which you could say is ethnic Manchu, but again, it looks like Han Chinese architecture. <coughs> there isn't anything that's officially preserved. And instead... You see things like um, let me go way back. You know, this is the remains of the Willow Palisade. This was the moat. This was the berm. These are the trees. The marker, the only marker on the entire length of that thousand-mile route, when I was researching the book, was here, and it had been toppled and was laying face down. You know, it wasn't properly set. Uh, no tourists were coming out here. I'd meet Manchu, if it, you know, Manchu <coughs> mayor, uh, village heads would say, "We're trying to attract tourists and rebuild the palisade. It's so easy. You just need trees, but no one will support us." Um, yeah, so you don't see much of that. San John's in this village where the ethnic, the native speakers are. They tried to attract tourists by putting up this, this board, but there wasn't a big movement for this because that's sort of the split as culture. It's not, you know, way It's not the, the harmonious society thing. So you don't see it so much, actually. Okay, Good you. question. Thank you. Hi, Alanik. Go ahead. Hi,
0: I, I was just curious about the the conversation around uh, large scale mechanization because uh-huh. um, clearly that happened in the U.S., mm-hmm. and um, we know that there are downsides, and it may depend on where you are, what kind of land you have. There are all kinds of issues, um, and I know that Bill Hinton had written a book uh, uh, sort of in response to his earlier book, uh, the function and then he wrote the Shun Fan, that was sort of questioning mechanization um, yeah. and the damage that it was doing. So. Is there any conversation that uh, you were party to about the pros and cons?
1: There is. And it, again, Manchuria, the northeast of the Dombe is a bit of an outlier because it's so flat mm-hmm. and the people don't, you don't walk into the village and see an ancestral temple or something dating back 17 generations, right? These are people that, for the most part, like, are quite new to the land. Um, and the land is flat and easier to mechanize, frankly. It's easier to do planting here. It's easier, I mean, you know, this land in Northern California, they plant rice by airplane. You go and visit these fields, you know, up the Stockton, the Sacramento River, and you're being pelted it's like a wedding shower. You've rice under your coffee. These planes are flying with That's how much they mechanize it there, and it's great. It's very good, high quality rice. Um, for the the thing I, I hear more about is in this area, mechanization works great for rice. In the South, it wouldn't work so great because of the terrain itself. For the poultry operation that Cardell's running in Anway area 54, they call it, um, it works great. But maybe that wouldn't work great for cotton out uh, in Xinjiang because of those things. That's why it's hard when we talk about like these blanket statements about what's going on. So I think the agribusiness model is being promoted by the government, but it doesn't necessarily mean that mechanization is going to happen. It might be that in areas that it's not so easy to do mechanized farming in, they're still going to have a company coming in and managing those fields and hiring the locals as labor, essentially, having them work for a salary or something like that. Yeah, that's a good question, though. Food safety is such a big issue in China right now that anything that's seen as, like, this is leading towards safety is is heavily promoted. And I think it's a good thing, actually. But you don't hear it so much as, like, this is the way of the future, this is development. It's more like, this is good for safety.
0: Although, you know, yeah. there could be downsides to that.
2: There is. And,
1: and, and the other thing that's happening, too, in China, you know, this is an organic rice-growing area, but I never saw anybody test the water. I saw somebody test the soil. Uh, they have a third-party certifier, but I didn't see the water. And so you don't know what's real about that either, these promises that are being made. You just don't know.
2: Yeah.
1: A lot of the people in the village, like my wife's family, her dad's from Sichuan, he was army, so he got put up there. He never got used to the cold, cursed his entire life. Um, and her mom's family is from Hubei. So it's either Hubei or Shandong. You see a lot of that. And people came either... Um, there was as many edicts banning Han migration to the area as there were edicts urging Han to go to the area because it was either, in times of famine, people would come over you know, through the Great Wall and move north, or at times when Russia was having incursions to try to take more and more land. Because you know the borders of China used to go much, much farther north over the present-day borders, all the way to the point had the Pacific coast. And so kind of the Qing, kind of the Manchu, would move people up to these areas, like Jilin City, for example, to keep the Russians from coming upriver in the wall. They don't trace back to the an ancestral temple in Dongguan. They do. Like my my mother in law knows exactly where they come from ah, the sure. club in Clubbing, and she's been there and stuff like that. But she doesn't consider it like her Shan, sort of. She doesn't have for her. She's there. She sounds like Taiwan. How so? Well, they,
2: they, they know where their ancestors
1: ah are right the same. They're
2: Taiwanese, but they know right. where they came from. Right. Carl Winsner,
0: Fordham Law School. Uh, the uh, it's a great presentation. Thank love are Going to get the book. The uh, um, uh, as, as the urbanization sort of sweeps through other areas. sort of areas that I'm more familiar with and sort of more remote areas in like Sichuan, and the like. I mean, what you're left with is you know the young migrate to the urban areas. Yep. Elderly. I mean, you're, the, the the rural communities are. You imagine the future? Probably going to be defunct. I mean, they get mm-hmm. swept the description that you you describe described sounds like even you could Im- can you imagine a situation a couple of years you know 10, 20 years down the road that you're still left with a, a functional community in this town it'll be People move into the urban, the, the, the buildings, yeah. but they'll commute to the cities? And...
1: I think so. And here's the second wave of urbanization that's going on in China right now. We all hear these numbers that China is a majority urban population now. And we know that a lot of those people who are in cities are, in fact, second-class citizens. They don't have a hukou. They, they are like my students who, although they may live in a city, they still have to go back to their villages. This is a, a problem that China is, I think, working to address. And they have different targets for this 2020. But to raise your point, one thing that happened in, in wasteland is sort of in 2010, it seemed, about the time I started the book, it became, I don't want to call it a trend, but you started noticing it more and more, that cities started getting bigger and bigger, right? that their borders would just expand. And so it was a way of, taking, of saying to people in villages, don't come to town, the town will come to you. And this is something that the manager of Eastern Fortune Rice says a lot in my interviews with him. "Like We're bringing the city to the village, so people don't have to leave. There's some good things about this, actually. So officially, like, this village, Huangdi, um, it's actually part of Jilin City now. It's part of Changyuchu. It's part of this district. It's great for the school, because now Jilin City teachers are assigned out here as if they would be to any other school, or they're, I shouldn't say assigned, they're, they're encouraged to go, right? Um, and so it's a good thing in some ways. that They're bringing the city to the, the villages now. And I think you're right. In 20 years, you'll see that. It is true, however, that China, You know, there's alarming statistics. I don't know how people calculate this, that a quarter of Chinese villages have it, you know, emptied out or vanished in the last 10 years alone. And there's people like the Chinese writer Feng Thai and, and Tianjin who's doing these big cultural heritage projects where he's sending volunteers out to the villages and trying to grab as much lore as he can before they go. So that's happening. But then I place excuse me, like Sanjia, this place is dying. This village out, this is north of Chichihar. Um, this is literally on a dead end road that when these women die and stuff, I think that's going to kind of be for the village. But places like Wasteland are going to still be around. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Back to people you talked about who you see across China who hold out the, the nails. Yeah. Um, and you put it in the context of them holding out for a better price. Yeah. Yet the woman you talked about earlier and described, sounds like she was holding out for political and reasons of, of conscience. Uh, what's the majority in this village, at least? In-
1: well, this is, this is it's a good question, Janet. Right. There's a distinction here. Sanjo is a farmer. Sa'i is a cadre. She doesn't have a land. She doesn't have land. She has her house. And so it's easier for her, I think. I don't want to I don't want to um, negate what she's doing or minimize what she's doing, but it's easy for her to make a principled stand because she has a pension. She gets pay anyway from the, from the state, right? And so for her to say, I'm not moving, I like my house, I'm not going to those high-rises, that's her principled stand, but I, I, one time I was sort of teasing her, like, I don't see you going around gathering <coughs> signatures, though, and I don't see you standing up and saying, I'm going to speak for these, and she's like, no, everybody can make their own decision, this is just my thing, and I'm to do it. But she is absolutely principled, that she wants to stay on the socialist road and that the party should be, um, she felt a little, maybe betrayed is too strong a word, like at the end when Uxintau visited the village and he went to the company as opposed to coming to the village government office or going to the, the farms.
0: And how many others are there like her and
1: town? Very few, actually. <laughs> uh, 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 the cadres themselves, there's about ten, but people who are principled that we want to stay true to the communist way, very few. Yeah. To the point where I could speed ahead a little bit, I'll just show you like, I was curious for a while. Um, oh, I want to talk so much about Japan. Um, I'll skip that. But I was curious, you know, like there are people in the Northeast who still talk about Chairman Mao quite a bit, but those are in cities, and it's laid-off workers. This is in Sheyong, for example. These are laid-off factory workers who are worshipping the statue of Chairman Mao in Shenyang, They're leaving flowers. They're genuflecting before him. They're asking Saint Mao for work, right? Whereas back in the village... This is where you see the propaganda. Along with the Communist Party of China, this is on a, a de, you know, a defunct granary. Um, and also on that granary, you see Agriculture Studies Dajai, right? But our village looks like this now. This is Eastern Fortune Rice has put up this new entrance gate to the village, which is essentially an advertisement for itself. You know, It's another, another billboard here uh, going on the new road that leads out here to the hot spring right here. Sa'i's house, Auntie Yi, she's right here. Sanjo is a little bit back there. Um, And so you see, this is, you know, the last picture I took in the village, actually. This is my roommate, the the Guans, his family, harvested their rice by hand for the last time, dried it out on the road for the last time, um, and sort of raked it meditatively like a Zen monk in a way, watching them, and they were very aware that this is the last time they're ever going to do this as a family, that once you sign this over to the company, you are done, right? You cannot get, maybe you can get your land back four years hence, but your house is going to be gone. Right? So you're never really going to farm that land again, and that's something else to witness. That you know, it's the end of an era. Yes, sir. This has to be last. Okay, good. John Lowen <coughs> from the National Committee. Hi. I was wondering <laughs>
2: about the reaction that your book has gotten, in particular mm. from your wife,
1: mm-hmm. from your wife's family that mm-hmm. remains there, and from you know other other members of the the village of the community. We practice separation of church and state in my house. So um, my wife, I was great, she was great. She didn't um, read it until it came out. Didn't want to And she said, as long as you're being honest to the people about who you're writing about, welcome to nonfiction. You, know, you did your job. Uh, the book comes out in Chinese this winter. I'm doing the censor thing right now, going back and forth on some of the Civil War stuff especially that's a little problematic that has to stay in there. Um, I did do a lot of press in China last week. I was in Beijing. Um, and I'm talking to Chinese media it was funny, the Beijing book was banned for about four years and then my best grad student at Hong Kong University translated it on her own and shopped it around to Chinese publishers and got, found a house for it, Shanghai Translation a great editor there um, and I, when I did the China book tour I was surprised, people, the Chinese audiences and the Chinese press didn't see the book as a document of you know, heritage preservation but a document of affordable housing the need for affordable housing in inner-city China, right? When I did this, too, when I was talking to the Chinese press about this book, um, people really wanted to talk about what is going on in rural China. You know, that this is not covered in China. I mean, this is a reason Pearl Buck is considered Chinese literature by a lot of Chinese intellectuals now. that I Even mean, her work was considered groundbreaking at the time. I'm not saying my work is groundbreaking, but uh, people really were curious, again, about what are these changes and what's that like? And can I go? Can you show me the directions there and stuff like that, which was interesting. So we'll see, I'll do a China tour in around Christmas and we'll see how that goes. I'll end there. Thanks everybody for okay. coming. Yeah. <laughs>